Welcome, I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six-Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six-Gun Justice podcast water cooler, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is my friend and fellow podcaster and Western fan, Eric Compton, who co-hosts the popular Paperback Warrior podcast with Honorary Six-Gun Justice Deputy Tom Simon. Hello, friend, how are you? Hey, Paul, what's happening today? I'm really glad to have you spend some time with me here on Six on Justice Conversations, and I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Yeah, me too, and I'm a big fan of the uh, podcast also. And it, It's funny because I was just listening to an episode that Richard did, I guess maybe a week or two ago, with Bo Lamore, and I was thinking, geez, they've asked me to be on the podcast after talking to this guy? And so <laughs> I'm extremely honored to be on the show. Thank you. But as Paperback Warrior was really the inspiration for us jumping into the podcasting business and starting up Six on Justice podcast. So we followed a lot of the ground that you had already blazed for us as far as figuring out what it is that we should do and how the show should run. So we appreciate both you and Tom for your support during this past year that we've been doing this. It's been pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. The blind leading the blind. <laughs> uh, which one of us is the one-eyed king? <laughs> right. One-Eyed Jacks. There's the Western movie reference right there. There you go. When did you first start the Paperback Warrior website? Because that was a long time before the podcast started. Yeah, exactly. I was goofing around one day at lunch in my day job, and I went to a bookstore, and I was poking around and looking at all these men's action-adventure titles. This would have been like in 2013, I think. And then I started buying these things up, mostly as, I hate to say, it was like a spoof. I was getting all the barrel-chested, bullet-belt guys wearing the bandanas running through the jungle. And I was thinking, boy, this is going to be great satire to make fun of this stuff from you know, the 80s. But then the problem was, Paul, I started reading it, and, and I actually liked it. I was like, this stuff, is, this stuff is great. You were a big horror guy at first, weren't you? I really was. In my teen years, I was reading a lot of horror. Stephen King, John Saul, Dean Koontz. All those guys were my best friends, and so I mostly stuck to horror, but in my early childhood, up until probably middle school, my dad and I did a lot of Westerns together. We watched a lot of old Western TV shows, which maybe we can get into later, but I shifted gears there. But getting back to those men's action-adventure titles that I remember reading when I was younger, I was like, man, this stuff is great. It's really taking me back in time. So I started up the website probably back in 2013, I think, and and it was really slow going. Either I was getting locked out of the blog because I didn't know my own password, and I was too lazy to reset it or, or try to contact the blogger to try to get it. But once I got going and met up with Tom Simon at the Men's Action Adventure paperback Facebook groups, and then he invited me over to his house, and boy, I really went down the rabbit hole at that point and westerns and crime noir and, and all the stuff that I had not really visited too much. And, and lo and behold, here we are now doing the podcast and working like a dog with Paperback Warrior, um, writing, reviewing. I spend so much time just preparing for what I'm going to read, what I'm going to review. And Tom spends a great deal of time on the episodes and he writes most of the episodes and it gives us most of our ideas, thankfully. But it's, it's really turned into my full-time night job. I hear you. It used to be, this was supposed to be a hobby. Exactly. <laughs> that lasted about the first month. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable how much time you put into it and the work. And it's just a little bit well, of a sacrifice you, for the family, too. And then you sit down to try to get a script together, and you, now you're starting to research stuff. My research shelf is growing exponentially 
since I started this with references for the Western shows and movies and actors and television. It's just been crazy. Picking up a Walt Slade Western off my bookshelf this morning led to a full org chart tracking down the real author's name. <laughs> Reading James Reasoner's blog on Walt Slade, I probably spent an hour down the rabbit hole of Walt Slade. <laughs> so. And it's funny, the things that I discover that I should have known about because they're so great, and I've completely missed them up until this point. I'm thinking James Warner Bella, who I discovered last year, whose incredible short stories about Fort Stark, they are the basis for John Ford's Cavalry Trilogy. Who oh. knew? <laughs> and I start reading them, and wow, they're hard-hitting, they're emotional, and I'm thinking, wow, how did I not know about this guy? And then just this year, looking for something else, I came across Dorothy M. Johnson's A Man Called Horse. Oh, yeah. And I'm thinking, this is a woman that wrote this? Okay, so now I'm going down the rabbit hole chasing who Dorothy M. Johnson was for a full episode on her because she's so fantastic of a writer and an interesting personality. I love this stuff. Yeah, it really motivates you to delve deep and locate the books that these authors wrote. And you want to, it's funny because you want to spread it to other people and you want to tell people about it and, and you hope that they want to discover this as well and, and enjoy it as much as you do. And quite frankly, for you and Tom with Paperback Warrior and for Richard and I with Six and Justice Podcast, it's been a boon having a built-in audience through the Facebook Men's Adventure Paperback Series group. There is a solid audience that just jumps on our shows. So it's been able to build from there, which has been really nice to be able to share this stuff. Yeah, who can develop the movie knowing that it's already sold out? It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, I had to have a laugh because Rich and I got an email from Apple last week that says, you're trending in Great Britain. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, yep. you're number 72 in our top 100 of Apple Podcasts? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why? Yeah, you ask yourself, uh, what am I doing right here? Because we are both play to a niche audience. We do, and occasionally that'll come up for us, and it will be Russia, and Tom jokes with me. It's because you write all that 80s post-apocalyptic stuff with the U.S. and the Soviet Union doing battle. The Russians want to read it now, but this is crazy. How do Westerns fit into your paperback warrior mandate? I know you talk about them occasionally because there's so much other stuff to cover in your past genre, but you still do Westerns occasionally. Yeah, we do, and we try to incorporate more and more of those into the blog and into the podcast as well. We cover mostly everything from the 20th century, other than maybe romance, but who knows, we might even get into that. Tom will get into that. <laughs> he'll shave his legs. Yeah, anybody who can get into plantation novels can get into romance. Yeah, he's he's got to be the guy for that. But, you know, we do crime noir, we do crime fiction, fantasy, pulp. Here lately, we've branched out into science fiction and horror. I've always had a keen eye for World War II fiction. Westerns definitely fit into that mold. It's the proverbial good guy versus the bad guys. And who doesn't want to rally around that cause? And a lot of these authors that we read that do crime noir have always thrown their hat into the, the Western genre at some point. And some of them, like Elmer Leonard, came from the Western genre. That's where they cut their teeth. Exactly. Yeah. And we were doing some research on Day Keen the other day. And I was thinking, did he ever write a, you know, a Western like Whittington? He wrote a lot of Westerns. So looking at his catalog, he only wrote one Western. But these guys have always got some kind of Western short story or novel or something for the pulps thrown into their bibliography somewhere. 
Now, you've reviewed quite a few of Lewis B. Patton's westerns. What makes them special for you? You know what? I really like his writing style. And he is, I guess, for lack of a better term, he is the meat and potatoes writer. He doesn't have a whole lot of humor in his narratives. In fact, it's really dry as the dusty plains that he puts his story into. But there's no humor. There's very little tomfoolery in his books. It's normally get up and go, fast reading books about the proverbial good guy who's been wronged or his family's been wronged and going after the criminals in a very violent way. Patton is a, I guess maybe if you compare him to the Piccadilly Cowboys kind of guys, it's probably a little bit more of a lesser degree of violence. But overall, he was a very gritty, violent writer, and I really enjoy his stuff a lot. Have you read much of Lewis B. Patton? He's one of those guys that I turn to when I can't decide what to read. Ah, okay. And if I go and pull out a Lewis B. Patton book, I know I'm going to get involved in it after a very few pages. He always passes my 10-page test. Okay. Where if I'm not into a book in 10 pages, it used to be 50 pages. Now it's 10 pages. There's just too many good books out there to read something I'm struggling with. I know you're a little different than that. You'll read them all the way through. You'll stick with it, won't you? I will, yeah. Whether they're below or above the the Mendoza line, I'm okay with it. But I'll stick with it most of the time all the way through. And Tom says I'm a sucker for brutality, but I'll read them good or bad. And you read them so we don't have to. Exactly. I carry that cross, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I carry it. You carry it. You said that when you were growing up, you and your dad watched a lot of Westerns. Did he share books with you as well? Or was that something you and your dad did together? Yeah, I found a picture. I, was, I went back to my hometown in, in Virginia last year, or actually 2018. And I found the picture, a Polaroid. It was my dad sitting on a sofa in the single wide trailer that we had when I was really little. And he's laying on the sofa and I'm standing right above his shoulders on the sofa. In the, I don't know, I'm right out of diapers and play like a toddler. He's reading a Western. I think maybe it was a Buchanan book. And I'm sitting there above him holding a Western. And it looked like it was, I'm trying to think of what that Western was, but it, it was clearly a Western. It couldn't read or anything like that, but I wanted to mimic what he was doing. And and yeah, he would share books as we go along, and he still does to this day. I call him, we have a weekly chat on Sunday nights, and it's always, what did you watch? What did you read? And even to this day, he's telling me about Zane Gray books that I need to read, and I'm telling him about James Reasoner books to check out. And so we go back and forth with that. Gosh, I remember growing up in, in my house when we first got cable, man, we were watching Bonanza and, and High Chaparral. My mom had me glued to Little House on the Prairie. Oh, jeez. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I'll cut that out if you want me to. <laughs> but I like that stuff. And and I remember Big Valley. And I was such a, I guess I had a crush on, who was it? Was it Linda Evans who played Audrey? Or? Yes. Okay. As long as it wasn't Barbara Stanwyck, you're okay. <laughs> yeah, I remember really liking Audrey. And I remember The Virginian. All those, all those old shows, my parents had that stuff on all the time. And Saturday night at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock, I can't remember what the time zone was, but Star Trek came on, Star Trek The Next Generation. So they flipped from Western to sci-fi in, in an instance. So I was exposed to all kinds of stuff. Interesting. With the proliferation of Western nostalgia channels, these shows are on all the time, 24-7. And it's interesting for me, I've gone back and caught some shows that I never saw when I was growing up. I'm thinking Track Down with Robert Culp, 
obviously pre I Spy, that's all I knew him from, because when I was growing up, it was all the spy craze, Man from Uncle, mm -hmm. Secret Agent, Mission Impossible. And it wasn't until later years that I got into the Westerns and then you know, starting to watch these things and Leonard Nimoy again and again as a guest star on all these different episodes before Star Trek and Charles Bronson's in all of these things. And you're thinking, okay, this is where these guys came from. Mm -hmm. This is where they earned their spurs. Yeah, like even watching Rawhide, like Clint Eastwood, or Wanted Dead or Alive with Steve McQueen. And you yeah. start seeing the, these familiar faces in all these shows. And what if you stick around for the credits or you check out IMDb, you start to find that a lot of your favorite crime fiction authors and pulp authors were writing those episodes. Exactly. Just off the top of my head, Frank Gruber, who was in the pulps forever and wrote westerns and detective stuff, he wrote hundreds of episodes for television westerns. I was just researching Norman Daniels this morning, who is probably his, his biggest creation was the Black Bat in 1939. But even Norman Daniels got into script writing for the Westerns later on. It's just amazing how many of these guys got employed with their talents to move into Hollywood. And make good money doing it. And they put food on the table, which was what it was all about in those days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. I'm researching an article right now on one-season TV westerns. So, in other words, shows that lasted maybe 17 episodes, maybe even 26 episodes, but just one season. And it amazes me. I sat down to start a list, and when I reached 100 one-season westerns, I went, I've got to stop because this is a project I'll never finish otherwise. And wow. so the westerns are so inbred into our DNA, I think, as American television watchers, that even though we didn't necessarily grow up with them, it still informs what we watch today. And we still see the same structure in shows that we watch today. We watch that stuff so much and we got familiar with the formula and the pattern of the writing. And I think I saw a meme the other day and it said something like, as I get older or now that I'm an old fart, less crap impresses me. And it goes into that now where I'll watch a movie that everybody's raving about. And then at the end of the day, I'm scratching my head saying, this was done 40 years ago. Like, I've already seen this movie just with different actors. But yeah, less and less stuff impresses me. But going back to those like one season shows, Paul, how many Western shows do you think were on at the pinnacle of that popularity of the Western primetime show, how many do you think were actually airing at one time? One season where there were 39 Westerns airing on network television in primetime. That's the three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. 39. Wow. You couldn't I'm switch the channel without stumbling over another Western. It was impossible. I'm assuming that was in the 50s or 60s? In the 60s, actually. Okay, okay. And I guess yeah, just before, because it was the saturation point. And from there, now we start to slide downward to where the shows like Gunsmoke and Big Valley and Bonanza, those are the ones that were surviving, the Virginian. And now there were a lot of these one-season Westerns that were coming in and, and dropping out because people were beginning to lose interest. But at one point, 39 primetime Westerns on TV. Paul, do you think the World War II vets would have been roughly in their 40s that were home from work, had the TV on, and do you think that they were just drawn to the Western formula? I think they were drawn to it. I thought a lot about this, and I've actually written about it fairly extensively in regards to the men's adventure magazines. I think it really was a response to coming back from World War II, and you've seen the horrors of war. 
And the pablum that was on television at the time, or in books at the time, just didn't impress you, as you said, from the meme. And you were looking for something with a bit more bite to it. And quite frankly, those early Westerns had that bite. They weren't easily resolved stories. They were moral dilemmas with no right and no wrong. And they were violent. And I do think that fit a need that the returning vets really were looking for at the time. I look at my dad, who went into the Army, I believe, in 67, and he did one year in Vietnam. And I know watching him as I was growing up, he would always watch Westerns. He was drawn to Westerns. Because like you said, I guess he had a need for that. But at the same time, he would never watch the Vietnam stuff that was on TV, saturating the 80s and the early 90s, stuff like Rambo or First Blood, the stuff like Platoon or the TV show Tour of Duty. He would not watch any of that stuff. And if I had it on, he would either ask me to turn it off or he would leave the room. I wonder where the degree of violence was. It just because the Westerns weren't in the time frame of when he was at war. I can speak to it from my 35 years with the LAPD. I spent 25 plus years working sex crimes. We're dealing with the basis of crimes and some of the most horrible suspects that you can imagine. Television shows Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue. I couldn't watch them. My wife said, you know, why? And I said, I look inside the toilet all day long at work. I don't want to look inside it when I come home. Ah, And so the Westerns, they were a palate cleanser. And to a certain extent, if you're watching stuff that you were involved in, if you were in the war or you're in Vietnam, you don't want to watch that stuff because it just brings back too much. And you want something that takes you out of yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense then. I don't read American police procedurals because I nitpick them to death. (laughs) But I can read British police procedurals because what they do over there is totally different than what we do over here. And I'm willing to suspend my disbelief in order to enjoy it. Okay. Yeah. All right. That makes sense then. Yeah. When you're looking at the Paperback Warrior blog and the men's adventure books that are really your bread and butter there, how do you think the Westerns differ from those books or do they? I don't think that they really differ that much. You could look at your typical monomyth. You've got the the lone hero on some kind of journey to find something or to rescue someone or you know, to find themselves. And that monomyth works no matter if it's a, it could be an attorney turned private eye who's been hired to find a, a missing Harris, or it could be a man who's watched his family get burned down in a cabin, and now he's on the journey for vengeance. I think it, that monomyth kind of idea really works across the board. It could be someone like MIA Hunter who's been hired to to take on the task of finding missing in action guys in Vietnam or, or in other war-torn countries. Same thing with Westerns. If somebody rides into a hostile territory dominated by Apache Indians or something of that nature to, to rescue someone or bring something back. So you can see that they all parallel, right? Absolutely. The searchers, the search for a young girl that's been kidnapped by the Indians and held hostage. That's the MIA hunter dressed up with a cowboy hat and six guns. Exactly. I don't read Westerns full time. Obviously, I sprinkle them in once or twice a month. But I think what I've drawn to here lately, just to differentiate the Western from the typical men's action adventure novel, is I've been gravitating towards the late 1700s, early 1800 
Westerns, stuff like Zane Gray's Spirit of the Border trilogy, Louis L'Amour's very early Sackett stories, the ones that he wrote right before his death, those kind of stories. And here lately, the one that I've been fascinated with is James Reisner's Wagons West, the Frontier trilogy, which is, I think, set somewhere in 1803, 1804. So real, real early in American history. But I think that is a little bit different in terms of early exploration, going into the wilderness to discover things. I think it, it makes it a little bit different. It does, and it has a more epic feel to it than the one man on a quest of vengeance type story. Exactly. It incorporates adventure, discovery. It really is a saga about American history. It has a little bit more room for character development and for you to engage with the characters. Exactly. Yeah, and I think I really like that approach to the Western formula. And I've been trying to find more and more of that kind of stuff. I had read William Johnstone's Last Mountain Man series, but by book four, book five, the main character is just in a normal frontier town. It, it left the wilderness and it left me. <laughs> and there's a whole mountain man genre we're planning on doing an episode on later this year. But it's the same way, I think, with the saga westerns. They are really a subgenre that really should have some attention paid to them as a whole. Right. And when we talk about mountain man, I'm calling you Tom because I'm so used to talking to Tom on podcast. <laughs> you also started interviewing me a while back, so... <laughs> I know, I'm flipping the, the table on us. Paul, I bet you probably saw it. The movie that sticks with me and made me fall in love with the Western prototype, I guess, would be Jeremiah Johnson, starring Robert yes. Redford. It's the old 70s movie. Boy, I love that, and I watched it over and over. It's Dances with Wells without all the Kevin Costner look-at-me stuff. It is, yeah, and it's really a violent movie, especially towards the end, but that movie I can remember really well, and also a movie called Death Hunt with Charles Bronson and Lee Marvin. Do we call that a Western? Even though It is, yes, I certainly think so. Okay, and I think it was based on a book called The Trapper, which the, the author's name escapes me, but those two movies really stand out for me in terms of Western formula, but also crossing over into that American saga, mountain man exploration sort of story as well. Eric, I really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks so much for sharing your love of Westerns and the things going on over at Paperback Warrior. You guys do a terrific job. Keep up the good work, man, and Happy New Year to you. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, keep up the good work on the podcast. We really love it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com. For information on prior Six-Gun Justice conversations, Six-Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six-Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and keep your masks up. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride. <laughs>